In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our regular Monday miscellany to get you in the mood for a brand new week. I'm Anne McElvoy, hand-curating today's selections. And coming up, from America, newly elected members of Congress from both parties square up to the idea of working together across the aisle. In a rare moment of apolitical calm, an astronaut remembers. And the mystical power of puppetry in Mali. But let's begin with the biggest story of last week, the midterm elections, and what the results might mean for American politics. A deep structural change underpins this divided Congress. While the Democrats have a majority of voters, Republicans have more territory. Gridlock may be stable, but it's damaging for the country and for both parties. In a two-party system, a party that prevails while consistently failing to capture a majority of votes will one day find it is no longer seen as exercising power legitimately by a majority of voters. For the Democrats, the challenge is immediate. They may rail against a system that disadvantages them in structural ways, but cannot change that system until they can work out how to win within it. We wrote that the onus now lies on the Democrats to change their game. Democrats should resist the urge to use their majority in the House to take revenge, hounding the president in the way that Newt Gingrich and his Republican colleagues once hounded Bill Clinton. A second Democratic priority should be to show that they have the ideas and capacity for governing that can appeal to a broader swathe of voters. One way to do so is to make a good-faith effort to work with the president and the Republicans. The president may not play along. Mr Trump could give up on the idea of signing any legislation in the next two years, preferring to rule by executive order while ranting against the opposition. But he may also surprise, proving more willing to deal with Democrats than other Republican presidents have been. The Trump motivating principle is self-interest rather than party loyalty. He has proved willing to discard some long-standing party positions for good and ill. And ultimately, Democrats have more to lose from dysfunctional federal politics. Republicans still consider the words, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, to be a microaggression. Gridlock does nothing for confidence in government, which is something Democrats need if they are to win more voters' confidence. Like it or not, they have more to lose from dysfunction than Republicans do. On Economist Radio, meanwhile, our podcasts try to decode the riddle of the midterms from some different perspectives. Ryan Avent, our free exchange columnist, told Money Talks that when it comes to the economy, there are two parallel realities operating in America. If you talk to people who are firmly in uh, in the president's base, they would say, absolutely, he's delivered on, on what he said he would do. He's gotten tough with the Chinese. Uh, he's passed in a, a growth-boosting tax cut and gotten rid of Obama's burdensome regulations. If you talk to people on the other side of the political spectrum, they might say that his economic policies have not really fundamentally changed the situation except to perhaps worsen America's debt situation and to tilt the playing field a little bit more in favor of the rich. Uh, you know, I think our position would be that he has done some things that he said he would do, delivered on the tax bill and on repealing regulation, but that the strength of the American economy at this moment is in large part based on what's happened over the past 10 years and things outside of Donald Trump's control, including what the Federal Reserve has been doing. 
But these positions are not always defined by party allegiance. In the latest episode of The Economist Asks, I heard from newly elected members of Congress from both parties. Chip Roy served as chief of staff to Republican Senator Ted Cruz during his presidential campaign, and he'll represent Texas's 21st district. And Mr. Roy shared with me one of his main concerns going into this Congress. Republicans failed, 100% failed, uh, whether that was in the, in the Congress or in the executive branch, to balance the budget in the last two years. And that's part of why voters made some changes. $21.5 trillion of debt is unconscionable. It's grown almost a trillion dollars in my campaign alone, if you can believe that, since I announced last December. I think it's time that Republicans and Democrats get serious about balancing the budget. In what universe is that a partisan issue? The world, and I assume you in The Economist, should be concerned about the state of the future of the economic health of the United States if we continue to spend money that we don't have, and that's what we're doing right now. Well, across the aisle, we spoke to Deb Harland, Democratic senator for New Mexico's 1st District and one of the first Native American women elected to Congress. Like Chip Roy, Deb Harland represents a border state, and so immigration came to define her campaign, albeit differently. I quizzed her on how bipartisanship might work on this most divisive of issues. It might be worth, in some cases, even accepting the intention of Donald Trump to build the border wall in return for an overall better immigration policy. Would you agree? I would have to see a proposition like that. But at this moment in time, I completely oppose a border wall. It's it's non-negotiable as far as you're concerned. I don't think it's necessary. I think we could put uh, an expense like that to work in so many other ways. There's so many needs out there. I just can't in all consciousness go for approving a border wall at that kind of expense. Plenty of tussles and trade-offs in store in January then. Subscribe to The Economist Asks for the view to 2020 and beyond. We're on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And while you're in there, do leave us a review. It makes all the difference to what we do and how we learn from you. Now, in an attempt to get as far away from America's midterms as possible, our science and technology show Babbage left Earth behind altogether. Three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. We have liftoff. In the special episode recorded at the Economist Space Summit in New York, Oliver Morton spoke to Rusty Schweikart, the first lunar module pilot for Apollo 9. From that extraordinary flight, he told us about five minutes that went on to change his life. I kind of let go with one hand, just held on with my left hand and, and swung around. And here's the, the sun up here and the, the whole Earth, thin blue horizon, you know. So there was not even any noise. It was completely silent spectacular contrast between the black space, the beautiful blue earth, and all these questions all of a sudden kind of came into my mind like... Cosmic rays. (laughs) Maybe it was. High Z particles, right? (laughs) Triggering these big questions. It said, why am I here? What does it mean when I say I? Who who am I? What's going on? What's this mean? How did this happen? Questions familiar enough to those back on Earth trying to decipher the midterms. Exploration continued in the Europe section of the paper, the latest in our series on Europe's neglected second cities. This week, Rostov-on-Don in Russia. 
A pungent odour of dried fish and the cries of merchants fill the cavernous central market, which locals in this southern Russian city still lovingly refer to as the Old Bazaar. Commerce is in the blood here. If a man doesn't want to earn money, then what is he doing on this earth, guffaws Gallia, who hawks pork? Rows of cellars reflect a multicultural history. Armenians, Georgians, Greeks and even Korean women peddling kimchi. Geography, tradition and a mild climate have made Rostov one of Russia's most entrepreneurial cities. Even 70 years of Soviet life could not snuff out the instinct. When Mikhail Gorbachev legalised cooperatives as part of Perestroika, Gloria Jeans, Russia's first producer of blue jeans and one of its largest clothing firms to this day, opened in Rostov. But it's not immune to the challenges that plague Mother Russia. Exporters gripe about the chilling effect of sanctions on business relationships. At the central market, Galia grumbles about rising petrol prices. Inna ruse that in recent years her customers have been buying fewer crayfish, the local delicacy. Times are tough and people are in debt, she says. In the end, we all live in one country. Over to our business section, which looked at why entrepreneurs beyond Rostov now have far more chances at hitting the big time. Companies such as Casper, which sells mattresses, Warby Parker, a spectacles brand, and Glossier, a cosmetics firm, were once seen as interesting curiosities. Touting their products online, luring customers with digital advertising and eschewing conventional retailers and marketers, they were anomalies shaking up small segments of retail. In fact, the growth of these microbrands shows a profound shift in the way that consumer goods companies are chasing their customers. Imagine 25 years ago coming up with the idea for a radically better toothpaste, suggests Randall Rothenberg, the boss of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, or IAB, a trade organisation for digital advertisers, who studies micro-brands. Raw materials would only be available by the tonne. No factory would produce toothpaste for a tiny new player. Ads would be hopelessly expensive, so driving demand would be impossible. No large retailer would stock it. Small is now both beautiful and competitive. Selling directly to consumers means that micro-brands boast a wealth of data. Their giant rivals, by contrast, use data filtered by retailers. To flourish, incumbents will not only have to acquire these new brands or start their own, they will have to learn from them. Scale still matters, but it will have to be used more shrewdly. We end with a piece from this week's Books and Arts section that caught my eye. It introduces the puppet mistress of Marley. When Moscone, Marley's only female marionettist, manipulates the shiny forms, her male counterparts tremble. The men are scared of me because they think I have a lot of magical powers, she says. They think it is not possible for a woman to be a marionettist. Women have traditionally been forbidden from operating marionettes, or even making them, a craft that entails complex rituals conducted under cover of night and involving cola nuts and roosters. Marley's marionette tradition has a long history. The custom coexisted with Islam, the main religion, which has historically forbidden figurative representation of human beings. Performances explore communities' histories, tell morality tales, 
and limb the roles of men and women. In the 1990s, urban companies educated Malians on subjects such as HIV and child labour. Muscone has broken many taboos herself. She made statues depicting domestic violence and satirical figurines of women wearing full veils, a burgeoning practice in Mali. But this artistic progress has been interrupted by violence, a partial jihadist occupation in 2012, followed by a coup. Fode Sidibe, director of Mali's annual Marionette Festival, thinks the current government and donors should sponsor the arts to promote peace in a divided country. The political establishment don't understand the value of culture, Mr Sidibe says. The security problem will not be solved with arms, but with arts. A hopeful thought to leave you with there, then, as we come to the end of this week's tasting menu. But as ever, you can find more on this and all of our other stories at economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And if you're not already, then do become a subscriber to The Economist. We'd love to have you. For our dear listeners, it's just 12 issues for $12 or £12 on economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. Economist.